actually starting a, a brand new series today, uh, and over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel, and uh, it's one of my absolute favorite books in uh, in the Bible, and um, honestly, I think that it's, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun, because uh, the book of Daniel, uh, while it was written 2,600 years ago, these events that we're going to be talking about the next three weeks, they happened 2,600 years ago. Somebody, turn to somebody next to you and say, that's a long time, right? Come on. That's a, that's a long, that's a, even though it was written 2,600 years ago, the book of Daniel is so relevant and it's so relatable to everything that's happening to us in America in 2019. It, it's absolutely amazing. And uh, in case you didn't know, the Bible is, uh, is written, it's not written in chronological or at least the Old Testament. So if you've ever been reading uh, your Bible and you read, you know, the story of uh, King David, and you see his life and then you see his death. And then you flip a few pages and then he's fighting a battle again. You know, he didn't come back to life. It's not zombie David, although that would make for a good story too. But uh, it's, it's just that the Bible wasn't uh, organized in chronological order. The books were actually written, uh, they were organized, kind of grouped into sections by the type of book that they were. And so at the beginning of the Old Testament, you've got the books of the law and, and history. So it tells the history and the story of God's people and the covenant he makes with them and, and all of that. And then it gets into the books of poetry, where you've got uh, the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Amen, my married people, right? Come on. Uh, and then you get into uh, you get into the books of the prophets, and they have they call them the major prophets and the minor prophets. It's not talking about importance. It's not talking about significance. It's just talking about um, how long the books were, how much that prophet had to say. Some of y'all wishing that. You know, churches would label preachers that way, you know, major or minor. You, know, you do a Google search, you're like, oh, this church has a major pr- preacher. You know, it's a, a six-hour-long message is, I'm going to go to the church with the minor preacher. We could beat the Baptist to Piccadilly. Come on, somebody, right? But, uh, and so Daniel's uh, one of the prophets. And uh, his book, actually, it, it's kind of funny because his book doesn't totally fit into any one mold, uh, because the first half of the book of Daniel is history, it's stories, and it's telling, it's a part of uh, the, the people of God, the, the nation of Israel, their history, when they were brought into exile, and generation after generation after generation of the people of God had turned and forsaken God, they've turned away from worshiping Him, and now they're worshiping all these different false gods, and their worship leads them to just unthinkable evil. Just over and over and over. And as the generations pass, it gets worse and worse and worse. And God sends them warning after warning after warning. His prophets, he sends word to his people. He says, turn away from this idol worship. Turn away from this evil. If you repent, I will forgive you. He promises them mercy. and he says, But if you don't, I'm going to send in a kingdom that's going to take over. He's going to take you into exile to where you're going to be forced to turn to me. And time after time and time after again, they didn't listen. And so we get to the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel, the first half of it, the stories are the stories of that exile. The second half of the book of Daniel is Daniel being a prophet. It's all prophecy. And um, a lot of it is very symbolic language. A lot of it's maybe a little bit difficult to understand. And so, but the reason for me saying all this is that the book of Daniel history and the prophecy, it's both put into the section of prophecy. And I, I believe fully, and as we you know, dive into this three-part series, that uh, 
as we look at the story of Daniel, we're going to find that the history is also prophecy. That the stories that we look at over these three weeks are, I believe, God speaking to us from 2,600 years ago to tell us a message in America in 2019 today. I believe fully that if you look at the stories that we're going to look at these three weeks, you're going to see how Daniel and his three friends modeled for every single one of us today. He modeled for us how to live a godly life in the middle of an ungodly culture. That's what they did. And even more than that, they didn't just live a godly life in the middle in the middle of an ungodly culture. Because I think all of us, when you, you hear that, I, I, that's, a, that's a big a big issue today. You know, I see how culture is going. I see how the world is going. But how do, I, how, do I, how do I survive? How do I just make it through it, right? How do we just hold on, Wilma, you know, and just make it through? When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be, right? Because right now it's just hell on earth, right? And, but if you look at Daniel and his, his three friends, they didn't just live through it. They lived lives of influence in the middle of it. They didn't look at the ungodly culture around them and say, we just got to make it through. If you look at their lives, they made a difference in the middle of it. And I think the best way to sum it up is this, is that they lived godly lives of influence without compromising their faith. That's what they did. And I believe if you if you claim to follow Jesus and you love Jesus with all your heart, I, I, I truly believe that this is a desire that you have as well. That you want to live a godly life of influence without compromising your faith. You want to reach this generation. You want to reach your coworkers. You want to reach the people that are in your world at the same time without compromising your faith. And I believe, I just want to share with you, that the same God that they served is the same God we serve today. He's just as alive and powerful today as he was 2,600 years ago to these four men in Babylon. And if, he can, if they can do it in their time, we can do it in our time as well. Do you all believe that? All right. Amen. Yeah, put your hands together. So today's message, uh, the, 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 these three weeks, we've got three messages. And today's message is called Stand Out. Turn to somebody next to you and say, you really stand out. Now turn to, the, turn to the second person who was your second choice and tell them you need to stand out. <laughs> I'm going to get you all in trouble today. Anyways, um, if you got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to start at the very beginning here. And if you like to take notes, uh, you can do that as well. Notebook, paper, all that kind of stuff. Or if you want to open up the Victory app, we have uh, the, the fun little fill-in notes there as well. Um, but we're just going to dive right into the book of Daniel, the first story. It says, uh, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Man, we just got some amazing names here, right? I'm sorry if you came in this here in here this morning and you're dyslexic, but it's just it's good. Um, so Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was uh, this is the land God's people, the Jews. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God, his false God, in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. 
Now, at the very beginning, you can kind of see this is this is what God had said. If you if you don't turn back to me, something is going to happen. The way you're going, you're you're headed for a big failure. The way you're headed, you're headed for a, a, a big defeat. And and it happens exactly how God said that it was going to happen. And when it happens, uh, you'll see what happens is that uh, he takes these articles of the temple which represented, the temple represented the presence and the power of God. And as he he took these articles from them, this was things that represented their worship. These were things that represented the way that they uh, interacted with God, that they worshipped Him. And it says what happened was, is he took those articles from the temple and he put them in the temple of his God. And this actually, it mirrors a story from, uh, you know, generations before where the Philistines came in uh, a different kingdom and did the exact same thing. But when the Philistines did it, the people, had, they were brokenhearted and they sought God after, uh, you know, all this. Uh, when the Philistines came and took it and they put it in the temple of their God, they were brokenhearted and they sought God and they worshipped. And it says that in that case, the first time that when they put the, uh, all the articles in the temple of their false God, it says that the idol that they put it next to fell down on his face and just was shattered into pieces. It was an amazing miracle. It showed just the power of God. But in this case that we're reading in Daniel's story, that doesn't happen. It's, a, it's almost a mirror image of how it happens. And yet we don't see the same outcome. We don't see the move of power in Daniel's case. And I believe it kind of piggybacks on what Pastor Ben was talking about last week. And that is this. Without faith... There is no power. Without faith, and I'm not saying without faith God doesn't have power. I'm saying without faith we don't see the power. Because in, in the Israelites' case, it wasn't that they were seeking after God. It was In this case, in the book of Daniel, it, they didn't have big huge prayer meetings. And they weren't broken hearted about, you know, the stuff. No, 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 no. Without faith, you didn't see that power. And the same thing is true for us in church. You know, we've got all these things we talk about, small groups and discovery and, you know, finding your purpose and finding freedom and all that stuff. But I'm going to tell you what, without faith, you're not going to see the true power in your life that we, you want to see and that you need to see. And that's why the beginning of the spiritual journey we say is no God. You've got to have your relationship with God. You've got to have trust and belief in Him Before you see the power come to life in your own life. And so this is what uh, even the book of Hebrews chapter 11 talks about the hall of fame of faith really. Talks about all of these amazing miracles that happen. uh, Whether it be Abraham, uh, Moses splitting the Red Sea and David killing Goliath. And it says, how did they do it? It prefaces every single one of their little story recaps. These amazing miracles, this power, shows a power of God. It prefaces every single one with this. By faith. By faith, Abraham was grant, was believed. By, by faith, Moses split the Red Sea. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. If we want to see the power, we've got to see the faith. And so as we go on with the story, Daniel chapter 1, and we go to verse 3. It says, then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, this Babylonian king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome. They would remind you of a certain youth pastor you know. Um, 
You did not have to laugh so hard at that. Thank you very much. Um, anyways, uh, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. Well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Now, key in on this. It says he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. And this was the strategy of conquest at that time. They didn't just come in and destroy your city and then leave you to stew about it and get angry and then come attack them again. What they did was they would come in, destroy your city, and then take all of your nobility, all of your leadership, all the the people that were the decision makers of the time, and they would take them to Babylon and basically brainwash them and turn them from Jews to Babylonians. And so that's what we see happening here. And can I tell you something? The enemy strategy has not changed. The enemy strategy has not changed. He still wants to brainwash. He still wants to get us looking like, acting like, thinking like, talking like everybody else. It's still his strategy because can I tell you something? If the devil can get you to agree with him, he's not going to have to attack you. If the devil can get you to agree with him and think like everybody else and talk like everybody else and act like everybody else, he's not going to have to attack you. He's just going to have to sit back and watch as things happen. The enemy's strategy has not changed. And as we see how it it continued in verse 5, it says, The king then assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. But it says, They were to be trained for three years and after that enter into the king's service. Uh, They were young men. Again, again, one of the reasons I love the book of Daniel as a youth pastor is because when they say young men, that phrase, they believe they were right that middle school, high school age. And so this was kind of like their three-year training before they entered into uh, the king's service. And it says, among those who were chosen were some from Judah. Now check this out because... Uh, I've been trying to research and figure out the exact number and nobody's totally sure how many people they took from, from Judah, from Jerusalem when they, when they sieged the city. Uh, The lowest number I could find was about 4,000 and the highest number I could find was about 100,000 people they took from Jerusalem. And so anywhere in that range, just suffice to say it was a lot of people. It was a lot of people. And so from that number, they took some to enter into the king's service. Could have been hundreds, could have been thousands. But this is what I absolutely love. These four stood out. Out of hundreds, out of thousands, these four stood out. Doesn't name any other name except these four. Among those who were chosen, among the hundreds, among the thousands, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now this isn't like when you were in Spanish class in high school and they took Mary and made it Maria, you know. Or took Joseph and made it Jose. That's the exact same name, just pronounced different, Okay. What they did here when they gave them new names is they they changed not just the name or the sound, but they changed the, the total meaning of what their name implied. The significance of their name, they completely changed it. And can I tell you, culture has an agenda for your life. Like, I think 
Hopefully we should all know. And if you don't know, just a little refresher. God has got plans for your life. He's got a purpose. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. They're plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and give you a future. God has a plan and an agenda and an identity for your life. But at the same time, Ephesians 6 says that we need to withstand the devil's schemes. The devil's got schemes and plans and an agenda for your life as well. And so many times he uses culture to do it, to corrupt our identity, our God-given identity. So many times he, get, he uses culture or he uses other things or he uses relationships to get us to question who we are. To get us to question who we are in him. To get us to question what we're even supposed to be doing here. And if you, I want us to look at their names because they're so significant. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, in their names had the very name of God. Daniel, if you look at it, Daniel, his name meant God is my judge. So every time somebody says, hey, Daniel, they're saying, hey, God is my judge. People say, hey, what's your name? Who are you? He says, oh, God's my judge. Every time. And when they changed his name, they took out God and they put in their false God. When they changed it to Belshazzar, it means Bel protect his life. You may have heard him called Baal and a lot of other things. They took God as my judge and they changed it. God's not your judge. Bell will protect you now. You move on to Hananiah. Gracious. Instead, they changed it to Shadrach, which meant command of Aku, one of their, another one of their gods. They had hundreds of gods in Babylon. They said, you think God is gracious? You're under Aku's command now. They move on to Mishael. His name meant, who is what God is? That's so good, isn't it? Somebody, if anybody's pregnant in here, you need to name your kid Mishael. That's a good name, all right? I'm prophesying over somebody today. Come on. Some of you are like, I don't receive it, okay? That's, <laughs> got enough, right? Uh, who is what God is? And they changed his name very similar to Meshach, which is who is what Aku is. You worship God, no, you're going to worship Akuna. And then they changed to Azariah. His name, I love it, Yahweh has helped. God, the Lord has helped. They changed his name to Abednego, which means the slave of Nebo, another one of their gods. You think the Lord has helped you. This is what the Lord's help gets you. You're a slave now. So every time they said their names, they're not hearing the reminder of God is your judge. They're hearing, no, you're under Bell's protection now. You're under Aku's command now. Every single time they wanted to re-identify them. And can I tell you something? When you feel, when you feel culture shifting under your feet, when you feel the attacks of the enemy coming up against you, can I tell you something? When culture shifts, we must know who we are. It's paramount to know who we are in Christ. We must know who we are. When culture shifts all around us, if we want to truly stand out, we've got to know who we are. We must know who we are. We've got to know the name that God has for us. The Bible says that God has a name for every single one of us. He's got an identity for every single one. How many of y'all know that names are important, right? Look, my mom was a, a, a school librarian for years and years. and years, So she saw tons and tons and tons of kids uh, over the years. And so she, 
uh, would share with us some of the, the cool names that she had. She had, and we're, we're out in the country too, so like, we're talking like, you know, uh, Bobby Sue and Billy Joe and all that kind of stuff. And one day she had a little girl named Enamel, okay, Enamel. And so she just loved the name Enamel. She thought it was so awesome. And she asked her one day, she said, Enamel, where did your parents get the name Enamel? And she said, off the side of a paint can. There you go. <laughs> Next time you go to Home Depot, you're really going to get it, right? That's Michelle, Enamel, whatever, you know. It's... <laughs> my my name's actually, I, I was named for two baseball players, okay? I, my, my first name, Kirby, is for Kirby Puckett. My middle name, Joseph, is for Shoeless Joe Jackson. And I don't think my parents ever, you know, like thought about the name. I think they just liked the way it sounded. My dad liked baseball, yada, yada, yada. So, but I was told over and over and over and over again when I was growing up, oh, you're named after Kirby Puckett. They'll give me the Kirby Bucket baseball cards and all that kind of stuff. Oh, you're named after Shoeless Joe Jackson, blah, 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 blah. They tell me all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but when I got older, I started, you know, actually like, you know, be more aware of things, you know, and, um, I, I saw it in the news one day when Kirby Puckett was arrested, not convicted for assault. Okay. <laughs> Very important to make sure we know that he's not convicted. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson, uh, historians say that he was one of the greatest hitters of all time. Okay. But he's not in the Hall of Fame because he was also a member of one of the biggest cheating scandals in the history of professional sports. <laughs> You're not going to see him in the Hall of Fame. Uh, but so, and so when I got a little old, I kind of had some, some great clouds over my name. And again, it was just like, oh, it's a cool thing. But I think it was when we were uh, naming our kids or something. I was like, I'm going to look up what my name actually means. And check it out. The name Kirby means... Uh, a church or a church community from the old English Kirk it translated into Kirk B, which became Kirby, blah, 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 blah. It means church. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. What does Joseph mean? So then I looked it up and the name Joseph means God will increase. And so I just had this epiphany on Google one day and I looked at it and it said, my name means the church. God will increase. Come on. Yeah, I love that. And I'm going to tell you something, knowing who I am, it was, it's, it's, it's special because it already affirmed to me what I knew from scripture, what my plan and my purpose, my identity was in Christ. I'm not saying everybody in here is going to have some deep spiritual epiphany when you Google your name, you know, you might find that your name is like Scandinavian for raccoon and I, I can't, <laughs> I can't guarantee that you'll have some spiritual epiphany, but it was important to me because it affirmed what I already knew from Scripture of who I was and who I was called to be, what I was called to do. And so that's why when culture shifts underneath your feet, when the world seems to be crumbling, when a dark, when you're in a bad spot, it is so incredibly important if you want to stand out to know who you are, to know the name that God has for you. Because the Bible says that God has a name for all of us. He's got an identity. He's got a purpose and he's got a plan. But the reality is that culture has an identity and a plan and an agenda for your life as well. And they're going to do everything that they can to re-identify you. To say that you're, you're, you're not a child of God. They're, they're, even to go back to the four Israelites' names. Now, you, God's not your judge. No, no, no. You're under the command of, of, of some other thing. You think... You think God will be your judge? No, no. 
money will protect you. That promotion will protect you. That relationship will protect you. So many times, Hananiah's name, Yahweh is gracious. You think God is gracious? No, 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 you're a slave to your sin. You're a slave to the way you used to live. Azariah's name, Yahweh has helped. You think, you think Yahweh will help you? You are a slave to your sin and your habits. You are a slave to the lifestyle that you're in right now. But can I tell you something? Can I tell you something? God has got a plan and a purpose. And the Bible says many are the plans of man in his heart, but it's only the plan of the Lord that will stand. And it's only God's plans for your life that are going to stand. If the devil can't get you to claim his identity, if he can't re-identify you, he's going to do everything he can to get you to forget who God has called you to be. If he can't get you to agree with him and re-identify yourself according to what he says, he's going to do everything he can to get you to forget who God has called you to be. Can I, can I go ahead and, and kind of remind all of us this morning who we are in Christ? Can I do that? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. That old you is not you anymore. You're a new creation. Jeremiah 1.5 says, before you were even born, says the Lord, I knew you. And I set you apart to be a prophet to the people. Come on, y'all. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, we are God's masterpiece. Created anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he has planned for us from long ago. From before time even began, Ephesians chapter 4 says, You were taught with, with regard to your former self, your former way of life, your old identity that the devil is like the, the butler in the movie who keeps just trying to come put the jacket on, right? He's, he's trying to put that old identity on you over and over and over again. You were taught, though, with that old way to put it off. Put off the old identity, which is corrupt by its sin. Put it off and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self, the one that's created by God to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Say it's important to know who we are. Daniel chapter one, verse eight, as we move on, as they're bringing all the food, as they're bringing all the wine, everything it says this Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Everybody say resolve. He resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, this is, as a youth pastor, this is the great miracle of this whole story. That some high school boys could say no to an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? Come on, you know. But the reason it's important is because this food and this wine, why... Why would he say no to, you know, to food and wine? It's because historians say that the food and the wine that was at the king's table, number one, it broke every dietary restriction that the Israelites had, the standard that they had. Because when God gave them the old covenant, it was every, even the food that they ate was an act of worship to God. Even the food that they chose not to eat was an act of worship to God. And so all the food that was on that table was going to break every restriction, every standard that they had ever held in their life for God. And the food and the wine, both of them, they believe, was, was sacrificed to idols before it was brought to the king. So to even take 
a bite or to even take one sip was to take part in the worship of all the false gods of Babylon. And so David resolved, everybody say resolve. He resolved not to defile himself. And it says, God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel, Daniel was ready to stand out. And this official was afraid if Daniel stood out. Everybody, when, when culture shifts, we, we must stand out. When, every, when the, the culture that we're standing on is, is moving beneath our feet, when it shifts, we've got to stand out. Just like the official, the world and culture is going to try and get you to blend in. Because, again, of all the hundreds and thousands of, of Israelites that were there, we only have the story, we only have it recorded of these four who took a stand. Of these four who said, I'm not going to defile myself, I, I've got a standard of holiness before God. I, I can't live that way. That's not who I am. Only four out of hundreds or thousands. And the culture and the enemy is going to try everything they can to get you to blend in and look like and act like and talk like and do everything that the culture does. But can I tell you something? Blending in will never lead to influence. We think so many times that, oh, if, you know, I can just buddy up and if I act and they know that I'm one of the blending in will never lead you to influence. Blending in will never lead you to influence. But can I tell you something? Standing out will. And when you know who you are in Christ, you know, th- this is the, the crux of the whole, the whole message, the climax it, is stand out. And it, it may seem like it's a big thing. It may seem like it's difficult. It may seem like, but can I tell you something? If you did, if you look at everything that led up to it, of knowing, if you know who you are in Christ, standing out is going to be the easiest and most natural thing that you can do. If you know who you are in Christ, you're not going to be able to help it but to stand out. If you know who you are in Christ, that's just going to be the natural extension of who you are. And that's exactly what happened with Daniel. Daniel said, I'm not eating that. I'm not touching that. I'm not drinking that. I've got a standard. That food has been sacrificed to idols. It breaks every standard that I have before God. There's no way I'm touching it. I may learn your language. I may wear your clothes. I may even answer when you call me Belshazzar. But I'm going to tell you what. I'm not Belshazzar. I'm Daniel. And I draw the line here. He had a standard. And when I look at this story, I think about how it's only four who stand out. There were hundreds, maybe thousands of other Jews in the exact same situation with the exact same dilemma of obedience that David, that Daniel had. The exact same dilemma of obedience. They're at the same exact spot. But instead of saying, no, I've got standards, I will, I'm not going to do that. I'm trying to think in my mind, what were, what were the thoughts and the processes that were going on inside their head when they were thinking about it? Maybe they were thinking something like, you know, well, if I if I don't eat the food, I, mean, I know that it's wrong. But if I don't eat the food, then I'll die and then I'll starve, you know, and then if I'm dead, I can't help God. Right. Some some harm is going to come to me if I if I do actually live up to this standard, you know, well, maybe, you know, if I if I show them I'm one of them and then, you know, it's only for three years. And then after that, you know, then I can get back to my standard after that. 
You know, maybe they were saying, you know, I know that God said that this is wrong, but maybe he was, that was thousands of years ago. Maybe he wasn't thinking about this moment and this culture and this day. Have you ever heard something similar to that before? When we're at a dilemma of obedience, so many times we get stressed about the outcome, don't we? In my own life, I know it as well. When we're at a dilemma of obedience of like, you know, I know what God has said in his word. But man, it's going to be hard. I don't know what's going to happen to me if I do follow up in obedience. So many times when we're at a dilemma of obedience, we're just so worried about the outcome. You know, if, if I don't, if I don't, you know, joke the same jokes that the people at work, they're going to think I'm weird and then I might not get that promotion. And then, you know, but my kids, you know, they've got the tuition coming up and then they need new shoes and braces and blah, 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 right? Or if I don't, if I don't party the same way everybody else parties at the office party, then, you know, again, same line of thinking, what is going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my livelihood? But can I tell you something? We see from the story of Daniel, we see over and over and over and over in the Bible, that we are only called to take care of the obedience and God will take care of the outcome. God doesn't call us to ensure the outcome. God doesn't tell us to act whatever way you need to act to get the right outcome. God says, you worry about the obedience and I'm the one who will take care of the outcome. Out of all those Jews that were taken, all the ones who were put into the king's training, we only hear about these four who stood out. Only these four who stood out, who were obedient. And the thing is, I love Daniel's approach too. I love Daniel's approach. There's no record of him, you know, getting in the face of all the other Jews or, or calling them out. Or there's, there's when look and you see in verse eight when he goes up to the to the king's official, he doesn't go up to him and say, "Oh, you bunch of Babylonian heathens, eating all this idol food and." You bunch of sinners, you know, like you don't see Daniel doing that. What does he do to his enemy? The people who have destroyed his city, maybe killed some of his relatives. What does he do? It says he asked permission, humbly approached his sworn enemy and asked for permission. Can I tell you guys something we probably already know? There's a right way to stand out. And that means there's a wrong way to stand out too. But there's a right way to stand out. Because when I talk about standing out, if you're anything like me, I'm sure in every single one of our minds, because we all have this religious tendency that always is nagging and wants to just come back up. And when I talk about standing out, there's that little part that's nagging in our heads like, that's right, talk about standing out. We need to stand out from all those sinful sinners that are sinning over there in sin land, right? Y'all know <laughs> We're in church here on Sunday. Everybody out there is turning into sin day. Come on. I just came up with that, girl. Come on. But that's that religious side of us that's wanting to come out. And there's a wrong way to stand out. And if you look at Daniel, if you look at his approach, it embodies two things that's all over Scripture. And his approach was a balance between truth and and grace. Turn to somebody and say truth and grace. And so many times we're at a dilemma of obedience. When we want to have a life of influence, we want to change people's lives and make a difference for God. We feel like it's a, a decision between truth and 
or grace. You know, it's a battle between truth or grace. If we overemphasize one and we forget about the other, you know, you, you've seen things like that before. Where, where people overemphasize truth and forget about grace. And it's like we were talking about earlier. You know, just, oh, you're such a sinner and I'm right and I've got the truth. And, and you're going to go to hell for all of your sin and I don't even care. But you're going to hell and I'm right and you're wrong. You ever seen or heard anybody like that before? Can I tell? I mean, I went to LSU. I walked down Free Speech Alley. And you you went to hell just for chewing gum, you know? I like just. But can I, while that may be factually correct to say that somebody is sinning and they're going to hell, that approach isn't helping anybody. You can be right. And be wrong in your rightness. When you overemphasize truth and forget about grace, you're not helping anybody. But on the other hand, when you overemphasize grace and forget about truth, then you've got the, the, the approach of, you know, everybody is welcome here and come on. And I'm not saying everybody's not welcome here. Everybody is welcome when you step foot on this. Every single person is welcome. But then you take it so far to say everybody's welcome and nothing about your life needs to change. You're perfect just the way that you are. And no matter what you're doing, no matter who with, nothing needs to change. And when we do that, we act as if we love people more than God loves them because God loves every single one of us, no matter what we've done, no matter where we're at. But I want to tell you something. God loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us where we're at. And so there's a balance between truth and grace. There's a balance between truth and grace. And Daniel was somebody who walked this out. He had the ability to stay true to his faith. Stay true to the truth of God's word and his standard. Stay true to his faith and yet still have incredible influence on his generation and on his time. Maybe you guys have met somebody like this before. For me, when I was trying to think, about it, I, was, I think about Pastor Terry, who's just got a, this joy for life and people just magnetized to him, you know, just never met a stranger, just loves people. But at the same time, has this unwavering commitment to God's word or, or Martin Luther King Jr., right? Somebody who who had. Such a love for the word of God and the standard, but yet at the same, had, you know, had grace. People were just so drawn to him, but at the same time called out what was evil as evil. Where would we be if Martin Luther King Jr. had not called out racism as evil? There's a balance between truth and grace. There's a balance between truth and grace. And to me, in this aspect, Daniel is such a picture and a foreshadowing of Jesus. We read in John chapter 1, verse 14, because if you look at Jesus, he was absolutely perfect, 100% flawless, never sinned. He was literally God, divine perfection wrapped up in human flesh. He was totally sinless and perfect and flawless. And yet at the same time, sinners and prostitutes and lepers and thieves all felt loved by him. Look at what John chapter 1 verse 14 says. The word became flesh. Somebody, Jesus. He made his dwelling among, among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. There's a right way to stand out, everybody. There's a right way 
to stand out. And this is what I want to, as we close up with the story of Daniel, if we move on to verse 11 and look at how everything closed out. Verses 11 through 20. I absolutely love how it all closed out. We see that the Babylonians had taken them. We see that they tried to re-identify them. We see that culture just wanted to change everything about them and who they were. And we saw that Daniel said, I'm going to stand out. And this is what happens. Verses 11 through 20. It says this. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief officials had pointed over, uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Again, high school boys saying that in the face of a buffet. Come on, y'all. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So we agreed to this, tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. I think some of y'all in here are like, well, duh, it's vegetables. (laughs) But in the Hebrew, that word better nourished, it means fatter. All the fat people say amen. And no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Look, that word says that when they ate nothing but vegetables, and water, they looked fatter than all the Jews who had been eating prime rib for 10 days straight. Non-stop. All you can eat. That is a miracle. I mean, everybody's like Daniel fast and all this other. You look at the, the natural side of it. No, that's, that's unnatural. That's supernatural to me. At the end, they looked healthier and fatter than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food. And the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. I said, y'all catch that as well? So that means for the first 10 days, he hadn't taken it away. That means for the first 10 days, after they talked the big talk, they had to walk the big walk. For 10 days, they had the vegetables in front of them and, you know, the whole rack of ribs. You know, They had the bacon in front of them, right? That's a hard decision to make. So not only did he stand out, but he had to continue his stand day after day after day after day after day. And so many, we've got to do the exact same thing in our lives as well. Once we stood out to continue to stand day after day after day. Now check what happens then. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And at the end of the three years... The king brought them in. The chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Everybody say they stood out. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. They stood out. When they took a stand, they stood out. Now, what I kind of want to end up with today is, is the reality. I know when we look at this scripture, we see, we see that happy ending, you know, right after the, the three years is wrapped up in, you know, one verse, two sentences. We see how they were obedient and then God brought the outcome. But I want to tell you something. I know that from personal experience that standing out so many times can leave you singled out. So many times when you stand out, it might not always feel like the right thing. 
it might not always feel good to stand out and to be singled out. But can I tell you something? Even if it doesn't feel right, it doesn't change what is right. Even if you take your stand and it doesn't feel right, it doesn't change what is right. And now, uh, you know, that I'm growing and I work at a church, I'm not as much at risk for, you know, bad things happening to me if I stand up for Jesus in the workplace, you know. It's more like, oh, good for him, right? <laughs> but in college, you know, I worked, um, I worked at LSU with, uh, with uh, a Muslim named Muhammad and, you know, um, with people who were on the board of the um, LGBT organization at LSU. And, and I know what it's like. And, and I hope, looking back, that I had I lived the life of influence that I really wanted, that I strove and tried to have. But I, I remember back from one specific example in high school uh where my freshman sophomore junior year um we had we had a a big tight group of friends and uh we were uh we were we had a big school okay so we were some of the popular kids not all of them you know but um so there was one group of popular kids who they 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 were partying every single weekend just getting plastered and drunk and smoking whatever and doing all that kind of stuff but we were we were the, the the clean you know popular group you know and I was so thankful that I had found this group. You know, we, we didn't drink, we didn't smoke, we, we were church kids and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then my senior year, one kid from this group came into this group and kind of started picking people off one by one by one. And it got to one point where we were in high school and uh, this huge group that we had, that one by one people started going off and you know, forsaking God and getting drunk on the weekends and all that kind of stuff. It... it Further and further, further, so it was whittled down just me and my best friend who led worship at our youth group. And then one day, it was just me. Even my, my best friend at the time had left. And, and I did my best to try and be Daniel and lead him and, and, and say, you know, hey man, God loves you. And you know, you know this isn't the standard. You know this isn't the way to go. And I, I tried my best to reach out to him. But all that got me was silence from him for an entire year. And I know from personal experience that standing out can leave you singled out. Eventually, yes, God's going to take care of the outcome, but you don't know if it's three years. You don't know if it's going to be a day, a month, a year, a decade. You don't know. You don't know if it's even going to be till you get to heaven, but I guarantee you God will take care of the outcome. But I know that standing out can leave you singled out. Standing out hurt. Standing out cost me a lot. I was a social, I'm still a social person. I love having a place to hang out every single weekend and friends to talk to and to have my senior year of high school just be almost nothing but solitude. Standing out hurt. Standing out cost me something. But after a year, that best friend of mine texted me out of the blue, just, or called me, I don't remember, this was a long time ago. And he said, hey, can, can we hang out? Can I come to your dorm and just hang out for a little bit? And I'll, sure, I guess. And so then when he came and he hanged out, we, we hung out, we, we played guitar and like we used to do and just kind of acted like nothing was wrong. And after about 20, 30 minutes, I look over at him, he's just breaking down crying. And he starts telling me about how every single weekend when he would go and he would get drunk and all, all of this stuff, it, it, it got to the point where 
you know, his life was endangered at one point because of it. And God just woke him up and he said, every single time that I went to one of those parties, every single time that I was getting drunk, he said, I thought of you. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, I want to come back. And through tears and some bro hugs, I mean, we, he came back to Jesus. And I'm not up here to tell you the story to say, look at me, but I'm up here to tell that story to say, standing out can make a difference. While standing out may leave you singled out, standing out can make a difference. It made a difference for him. To me, it makes me look to Jesus. The way Daniel stood out and he had influence on his generation, when we look to Jesus who stood out for us. He stood out and was singled out. He was stood out and left on his own. Jesus left his, just like Dan, he was left, he left his home and came to this foreign country of earth and he was, he stood out and he was singled out. In the middle of the darkness, he was the light that was shining. His love stood out. His grace stood out. His forgiveness stood out. And it left him singled out. He was the light of the world shining in the darkness. And you want to know what he says to us? The light of the world says to you and to me. And he says, you too are the light of the world. He's saying the same way I stood out, you can stand out too. The same way he showed love to the unlovable. The same way that he crossed boundaries with people that were deemed as sinners and hopeless. He says, you can stand out too. And didn't Jesus make a difference in your life when he stood out? Think of the difference that you can make when you stand out for him and you point others to him. When Jesus could have condemned those sinners, when he could have condemned you and me, Instead, he took our penalty on the cross. He stood out, did something no one else would have done. The Bible says he was obedient to the point of death on the cross. And why did he do it? Why did he stand out in that way? The Bible says it was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. The joy of the resurrection I believe it was the joy of having a relationship with you and me for eternity. Every second of agony as his nails were, as his hands were nailed to the cross and every, every second literally was torture. Historians say it was the worst form of, of execution ever in the history of the world. Every second was agony and torture. It says he endured it for the joy of coming into relationship with you and me. For the difference that it was going to make in our lives. Jesus stood out for us. The grace he gives. The forgiveness he gives. The love that he gives. It's like no other. It stands out. And so today. I want to give everybody the opportunity. I want, wherever you're at. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Wherever you're at today. I just want to ask you the question. Don't you see the difference that standing out can make? Don't you see the difference 
that Jesus made when he stood out for you and for me. And if you're in here this morning and you say, you know, I've never, I've never experienced this before. I've never experienced his love before. I didn't know that he died on the cross for me. The beginning of your journey is knowing him. The beginning of your journey is coming into relationship with him and putting your faith in him. Not just believing in him, but putting your trust in him. Saying, my old life is gone. Leaving the old way of sin, the old identity and saying, Jesus, I'm going to take your life and your identity that you, I'm going to take your forgiveness. I'm going to say the old me is gone. I'm turning away from it. And Jesus, I take hold of you. And if you're in here this morning and that's you and you want to pray that prayer, you want to give your life to Jesus. You want to start on that journey. Claim that new identity that he has for you. If that's you in here this morning, every head's bowed, every eye's closed, nobody's looking around. But if that's you this morning, I want you to just go ahead and raise your hand wherever you're at this morning. That's awesome, everybody. That's awesome. So good. I want everybody to take a moment right now with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Let's pray this prayer out loud for the ones who raised their hand in here this morning. Just to help them out. Not singling anybody out this morning. We, we just want to help you get to Jesus. And the words that I'm saying, I want you to repeat them after me, but it's not the words that are important. It's your heart. Everybody pray this prayer after me. Say, dear Jesus, I thank you that you stood out for me. I thank you that your love is like no other. I thank you that your grace is like no other. That God, I don't deserve your love. But still you died for me. So I thank you for standing out for me. I thank you for dying on that cross in my place. And so today I give my life to you. I turn from the sin of my old life. And I give this life to you. In Jesus name we pray. Can everybody say a good amen this morning?